This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, Senator Mike Crapo is working to create a steady supply of legal foreign labor, and we'll hear more about his efforts. Plus, a large potato operation in East Idaho that's more about helping the needy than it is about making a profit. We'll hear from the USDA about an heirs relending program that aims to address some challenges. And of course, Paul Marchant brings us another installment of Irons in the Fire. I'm Neil Larson. Welcome to the program. Our news is just ahead. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. The Department of Agriculture this week reports that food insecurity declined slightly overall in 2021. Michael Clement shares more. USDA's Economic Research Service just released its annual report on food security, showing a slight improvement in 2021 from 2020. American Farm Bureau Federation senior economist Veronica Nye explains the data. Their study reveals that food insecurity in the United States declined relative to 2020. About 13.5 million households in the United States, or 10.2% of the population, faced food insecurity. Compared to 2020, in the height of the COVID pandemic, when 10.5% of the population, or 13.8 million U.S. households, faced insecurity at some point during the year. However, Nye says regional differences show a different story. Despite the fact that we saw an overall decline in the number of families that were food insecure in the United States last year, it wasn't true across all regions. In the Midwest, we actually saw an increase in the percentage of households that were insecure from 9.5% climbing to 9.9%. We also saw an increase in the West where we went from 9.5% up to 9.7% of households. In the South and the Northeast, we saw declines in food insecurity. Given inflation in 2022, Nye says food insecurity may be increasing. In the data that was just released, we already see that families that are living in rural areas have a higher rate of food insecurity than those who live in urban areas. Families with children in the household have higher rates of food insecurity. And families with elderly people tend to have a higher rate of food insecurity. So we would expect that, unfortunately, those families that are already struggling with tight finances would see an increased rate of food insecurity with the higher inflation that we're seeing today. Michael Clements, Washington. By the way, how might the numbers regarding household food insecurity in our nation differ between 2021 and the previous year? Well, Rod Bain has more from a USDA perspective. Overall, for the prevalence of food insecurity, we did not see a statistically significant change from 2020 to 2021. But we did see some statistically significant changes for some subgroups. The summary from USDA economic researcher Alicia Coleman-Jensen regarding the annual household food security in the U.S. report issued Wednesday by the Agriculture Department. For 2021, 89.8% of U.S. households 
households were food secure, but 10.2% of U.S. households were food insecure. No significant difference year over year in both categories. Yet subcategorial changes from 2020 range from notable decreases in food insecurity in households with children. 6.2% of households with children had food insecurity down from 7.6%. To increases in food insecurity in households without children. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Senator Mike Crapo is working to create a system for foreign workers to come to the states to work legally. I had a chance to talk with Senator Crapo this week about his proposed bipartisan bill. Well, you know, I am uh, the lead Republican, and uh, Mike Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, is the lead Democrat on probably the main bill that is out there to try to help our agriculture community. And uh, this bill does not grant any amnesty. What it does is to create a system in which um, those from foreign countries, particularly Mexico and other related countries that uh, are so anxious to to send workers here, uh, can do so legally. These these, uh, people who apply have to apply legally, and they would, if they, if they, uh, are granted the waiver they get it's it's not a waiver the the visa they get a a work visa to come and work in the united states and uh, it does not create a pathway to citizenship Uh, if they want to apply for citizenship they're welcome to do so under our law and move forward and this is the kind of immigration that we need to have rather than the flatly open borders that we're seeing right now where fentanyl comes easily across the borders I also asked Senator Crapo if his bill would give these immigrants access to things like welfare and other elements of the social safety net. No, not under my bill. No, my bill does not give them okay. uh, any benefits that citizens of the United States have. Uh, it, it is a work visa. And there are some labor provisions in there that had to be negotiated. Um, but these are provisions that, by and large, the agriculture community said they were okay with. There are, this bill has not yet been finally agreed to because of that, uh, because some of the uh, some of the things that uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are trying to push into the bill are uh, litigation, giving litigation rights, uh, and and uh, giving certain uh, labor rights that uh, I don't believe should be put into the bill. So that area is one area where there's a bit of a battleground. But it's an area we have not agreed to do, and I don't intend to agree to that. Another week-over-week improvement in the nation's pasture and rangeland conditions were noted by the USDA in its latest report. Here's Rod Bain with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. Three consecutive weeks of improving U.S. pasture and rangeland conditions thanks to late summer and early fall rains. This is USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. Taking a look at the week ending September 4th, we currently see 28% of the nation's rangeland and pastures rated in good to excellent condition. That's a three percentage point improvement from last week's 25%. Meanwhile, just 42% of the country's rangeland and pastures rated very poor to poor on September 4th. That is a four percentage point improvement from last week's 46%. The last time there were three consecutive weeks of improving total pasture and rangeland conditions nationwide, May and June of this year. 
Rippey says rains in the west and south have played a role in the improving pasture and rangelands. Yet drought in places like the Great Plains continues to drive the very poor-to-poor condition ratings for the contiguous 48 states. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Regional and local food systems will get a major boost from investments just announced by USDA. Here's Gary Crawford along with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. When the U.S. food system had problems coping with the effects of the COVID pandemic. We knew that it was going to be important and necessary for us to build a stronger, better local and regional food system. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack telling a media conference Wednesday there are 50 government programs designed to do that, but most people either don't know about them or know how to access them. So today uh, we're announcing the availability of $400 million to fund up to five years at least six new regional food centers. Which will have a number of missions first. To provide a better understanding of the programs that are available uh, to make sure that folks are fully aware of how to work and to leverage the various programs that exist. He said at least four of the initial six centers will be focused in underserved areas of the country, including Indian country, counties along the U.S.-Mexican border, and persistently poor areas of the Delta, Southeast, and Appalachia. USDA is looking for funding applications from organizations with plans to develop regional food business centers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A northern Idaho farmer planted barley after a few years of raising Kentucky bluegrass, and the barley seedlings grew to about three inches tall then they started to die. According to a piece by John O'Connell with the University of Idaho, the cause of the crop failure was apparent when the farmer checked the pH of his soil. It was 4.4, too acidic for barley. Growers throughout northern Idaho, especially those who plant barley, have reported similar experiences. University of Idaho Extension barley agronomist Jared Spackman and UI Extension cropping systems agronomist Kurt Schroeder suspect many fields in the region that have historically been suitable for grain production but have been trending acidic are finally getting too far out of balance. In parts of eastern Idaho, where soil acidity is also becoming a problem, Spackman has started a study on applying sugar beet lime, a byproduct of the sugar extraction process, as a means of raising soil pH and thereby improving crop health and keeping weeds in check. Agricultural lime is typically composed of calcium carbonate. The carbonate reacts with acid in soil to neutralize it, and the calcium can benefit crops deficient in that nutrient, Lime supply is limited in northern Idaho, adding to the cost of application for farmers needing to raise their soil pH, such as the barley grower who contacted Spackman about his lost barley crop. Now, if you'd like to reach more, or read more, rather, about this effort, look for the headline, Lime Application Study Assesses Looming Soil Threat, at the Idaho Farm Bureau's website, idahofb.org. Well, Taylor View Farms just outside of Idaho Falls is a 4,000-acre operation owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this past week, the media was treated to a tour. 10 million pounds of potatoes are produced each year there, and all of them are donated for charitable use, much of it for local nonprofits like the Idaho Falls Food Bank and Catholic Charities. Farm manager David Nielsen explains how they're able to keep the potatoes fresh through most of the year. All winter long, we're pumping air and humidity to keep the potatoes happy through the winter. So what temperature does it need to be? We take them down to 38 degrees for them to store, and they'll store for, we, we never want a potato to have a birthday. So <laughs> they, they store a little less than a year. Okay. So they'll, they'll go in here in October, and we're usually, uh, we're usually empty by August. 
Brad Backman, who oversees the farm operation for the church, talked about the farm's mission of service. We want to communicate to the area of Idle Falls that this is a community farm. This, uh, this purpose of this farm is not just for members of the church, but it's for members of all faith and even those without faith to be able to uh, serve here and to partake of the, the harvest that happens here. And so we want the community to know that um, we're willing to work with anybody and let anybody come out here and, and serve and work together. If we can build a stronger spiritual community in Idle Falls, that's what it's all about. And, you know, my opinion, and I believe the opinion of many who serve out here is this is the Savior's way in being able to uh, help our brothers and sisters, and uh, we're all brothers and sisters, and so we invite everybody to, to come out and serve here. And uh, nonprofits, these potatoes are available to everybody, and we have a fantastic manager in Dave who runs a terrific farm, and um, we're just appreciative as, as members of the Auto Falls South Stake to be able to support the farm and have a good farm manager. And Ariel Jackson is the executive director of the Idaho Falls Food Bank. She explains what the large potato donation means for area families. Many years ago, we had a need, and we put it out to the community, and and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints responded and called and said, we can help you. We can provide these potatoes for you. And for as many years as I can remember now, anytime we have a need, we just call and say, hey, we're really low on potatoes, even spud boxes, um, anything that has to do kind of with excuse me, the potatoes or what they do out here, we just call and tell them we have a need and they they come through for us. They'll bring us 15 pallets of potatoes, which will feed our families for months. Um, and it's potatoes are really versatile. We really like to give them out to families. You can put them in a stew, you can use them as a side dish, You can they keep a really long time. And so it's something we always wanna have on hand. And, and this church farm has become our most consistent source of, of fresh, potatoes that we want to provide to our families and we're feeding more families than even we were during the pandemic right now and so it's it's something those carbohydrates and those starches and those things that can really stretch a family's meal um, mean a lot so it's the relationship that we have is is really important to us by the way the 4,000 acre operation produces about 100,000 sacks of spuds each year when we return a look at the Airs Property Relending Program with the USDA, plus an expected slowdown in the rate of food price increases on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851.
Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. For the latest Idaho Ag news, just go to IdahoFarmNet.com. The issues resolving heirs property and access regarding farm operation and farm programs have led the Ag Department to develop a relending program that focuses on resolution in these situations. Rod Bain looks at the heirs property relending program in this edition of Agriculture USA. Heirs property has long been an issue in the realm of agriculture on a couple of fronts. There is the ability of a landowner, one among usually several heirs, to farm on the property according to USDA Deputy Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights, Monica Rage. Heirs property owners have a challenge accessing USDA programs. They can't leverage access to other capital by walking into a bank to get a mortgage so that they make an additional line of credit to put crops in the ground. There is also the historical challenge that underserved producers have dealt with regarding heirs property acquisition and ownership. The USDA has recognized heirs property as the leading cause of involuntary land law among African-Americans. Now a USDA Farm Bill-based program is available to help producers resolve heirs' property issues. I'm Rod Bain, and coming up, a look at the heirs' property relending program in this edition of Agriculture USA. Looking for ways to serve but don't know where to begin? Go to JustServe.org, a free site to help those who want to serve find opportunities nearby. JustServe has teamed up with organizations nationwide. Go to JustServe.org and type in your city, and you'll see a list of service opportunities. Sign up on JustServe to receive emails letting you know about new projects. JustServe is fast, free, and easy. Perhaps the place to start when trying to understand the challenges that have been associated over the years with heirs' property as it relates to agriculture is with a definition of what an heirs' property is. With that explanation, USDA Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau. When you're thinking about heirs' property, you're really thinking about the land that belongs to somebody who, for whatever reason, didn't execute a will and testament. So the land divides equally amongst the heirs, which they then divides equally amongst the heirs, and it's all an undivided interest. So you don't really own an acre out of that 40 acres. You own an interest in all 40 acres divided amongst the number of heirs. Two issues come into play regarding heirs' property at ag. First is how underserved ag producers may be at a disadvantage historically in heirs' property. The nature of land ownership in America comes across from Europe. The tribal folks that were here didn't really have a piece of paper that validated their land claim. The black farmers in the heirs' property community, when they got the ability to farm, they were doing so on land without that multi-generational concept of land ownership as well. And second, the disadvantage that farmers ranchers and heirs property situations have in many instances regarding access to USDA farm safety net programs. Where that becomes a problem for the farming community, not only in affecting control so you can actually farm it, but demonstrating control in order to meet the eligibility requirements for our standing safety net farm programs. So that is where a 2018 Farm Bill program, the Heirs Property Relending Program, provides an avenue to address these challenges. 
Implementation of this program over the past two years by the Agriculture Department has led to the recent announcement of three organizations approved or conditionally approved as intermediary lenders. We are doing a relending program where they will get capital from the Farm Service Agency at 1% to relend to prospective borrowers who are interested in perfecting title to heirs' property land. Administrator Ducheneau says in addition to being intermediary lenders in the program, once heirs' property relending program loans close, these three selected organizations can also assist ag producers and landowners in resolving heirs' property ownership and succession issues. Meanwhile, applications are being accepted for community development financial institutions and other lenders who wish to participate in this program. They'd have to be a certified CDFI or some other recognized lender. That could be a cooperative, a credit union, and they have to have some experience and capability in making and servicing loans, and they will be prioritized on their experience serving underserved producers and in this subject matter should we have more applications than funding available. Yet with more than $100 million in heirs' property relending program funding available for these competitive loans, we do have a meaningful amount of budget authority to do these type of programs, so we've announced that this program is going to be open on an ongoing basis until further notice. Information on lender applications, as well as the heirs' property relending program, are available online at farmers.gov slash heirs slash relending. FSA is also providing alternative methods of documentation for heirs' property landowners and farmers to be able to prove that they are the landowners. According to FSA Outreach Director Latrice Hill, another provision that was part of the 2018 Farm Bill. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Food shoppers may see continued price hikes for the rest of 2022, but those hikes may be smaller than earlier. Gary Crawford explains in this report. Ah, yes, I remember it well. It was early winter. Oh, yeah, winter of this year. Food shoppers in this country had just endured a year of rising food prices. On average, 2021 saw food prices at the grocery store go up by 3.5% for the second year in a row. The normal food price hike per year is around 2%. So early this year, we were glad, happy to hear experts predicting that food prices for 2022 would likely only rise about 2%. So let's fast forward to the present. And here's the question. By the time this year at the grocery store is over, how much more than last year will we have paid for those grocery store foods? Will it be 2%? No, not 2%, not 3.5%. The forecast right now is between 10 and 11%. Matt McLaughlin tracks retail food prices for the USDA, and he's had to run to keep up with the large monthly increases that we've seen this year, increases that exploded last February with the start of the war in Ukraine. However, maybe Matt can begin to slow down to a trot, at least, for the remaining months of this year. We say that because of what started to happen in July to things in the economy that input into the cost of food. A lot of our input markets and prices are actually going down. So we saw uh, large decreases in energy prices, but then also categories like farm-level soybeans and wheat also went down by double-digit percentages. And yes, those declines have been pretty big, but even so, they have not been large enough to take prices below what they were a year ago. 
Soybeans, for example, went down by 11.4%, but it's still 5% above a year ago. Wheat went down by 22.7% last month, but it's still about 22.3% above where it was a year ago. Much the same story for energy prices, but in July, there was for the entire economy zero inflation, which could help slow down price increases for all kinds of foods. Matt says up to now, grocery store food prices have risen only about 9%. For the whole year, he's forecasting, as you heard earlier, 10 to 11%. So to make that forecast, we would need a further increase of a percent or two, but we've got four full months left in the year to do it. So we do not expect a price decrease but a leveling out of price increases, that they would increase more slowly than they did in the first part of the year in terms of month-to-month changes. Giving Matt and us food shoppers a chance to catch our collective breaths. But even so, almost every food item at the store will end up the year averaging far above last year and even above what had been expected just a couple of months ago. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In our next segment, a look at the purpose of specialty block grants, plus a look at environmentally friendly innovation in agriculture as well on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. The USDA has just released a new set of agricultural trade forecasts. Gary Crawford has this report. A few weeks from now, when the last entries for this fiscal year are entered into the U.S. Agricultural Trading Books and Ledgers, those books will show a strong pace of growth in U.S. agricultural exports. Very strong. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Seth Meyers comments studying the new USDA trade forecast for this current fiscal year, a forecast indicating that the U.S. will end up doing $196 billion worth of ag export business this year, $5 billion more than was expected back in May, and also far and away a record building on the uh, previous record set the previous year. Which was $172.7 billion. So we're seeing about a 13% increase in ag exports. And Meyer says as far as U.S. ag imports. That forecast was revised up by $11.5 billion to $192 billion. 18% more than last fiscal year, making it the largest single-year jump in imports since 2011. Now let's go to the new USDA ag export forecast for this next fiscal year that starts October 1st. The fiscal year 23 initial 
initial export forecast is for a little bit of a decline. A $2.5 billion decline to $193.5 billion. Seth Meyer told us some of that decline may be from expected lower actual supplies of exportable cotton, beef, and sorghum. We have one of the lowest harvested areas for cotton in decades. We're in a contraction phase of the beef cycle. Sorghum's been negatively affected by drought. So a possible lack of product might be behind much of the expected decline in U.S. ag exports. Meanwhile, USDA projecting that the U.S. will buy $197 billion worth of foreign ag products, a new record high by far, producing a $4 billion U.S. ag trade deficit. But Seth Meyer says we shouldn't get too worked up or worried about that forecast just yet. I mean, after all, we're looking a long way out into the future. Meyer says first, the 2023 fiscal year hasn't even started yet. Plus, Meyer says even with brilliant analysts working on it, a solid forecast is almost impossible now because of a huge amount of uncertainties. We've got continued war in the Ukraine. We've got tight agricultural markets, undertrend crops in a few places in the world. We've got concerns, but not certainty about an economic contraction. Some of the folks who forecast GDP have been ratcheting down their global GDP growth. And that could impact demand. Could, might, might not. So Meyer says take this fiscal year 23 forecast with a grain of salt. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. An American Farm Bureau Federation leader highlighted environmentally friendly innovation in agriculture during testimony to a Senate committee on Wednesday. Here's Michael Clements with more. American Farm Bureau Federation Vice President Scott Vanderwall testified to the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee Wednesday. Vanderwall gave testimony in support of the Livestock Regulatory Protection Act of 2021. We wanted to stress to the members of the committee that agriculture has been tremendously innovative over many, many years. And with the subject of greenhouse gas emissions and everything coming up, we want them to understand the tremendous strides we've made in improvements. And of course, agriculture is always looking to improve. We've become much more efficient, both from an input standpoint and also from a greenhouse gas emissions standpoint per unit of productivity. The legislation would prohibit the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating agriculture based on greenhouse gas emissions. Part of the points that uh, we made is the strides that we've made uh, have been voluntary and market-based over the years, and that needs to continue. We can't have mandatory generalizations or instructions from the government handed down to us because that causes a, a tremendous economic and time impact. Vanderwall adds farmers and ranchers are the original conservationist. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, farmers and ranchers want to leave their land and their resources in better condition than they found it, and uh, that's certainly very important because we live on the land. We drink the water that's under the ground. We depend on those resources to make our living, and there's no reason we would ever abuse those. And in fact, we do our best to take care of them at all times. Michael Clements, Washington. USDA's latest awards of specialty crop block grants demonstrate the intent and benefit of this support to various aspects of the specialty crop industry. Here's Rod Bain with more. Marketing, education, research, competitiveness, the intent of the Agriculture Department's specialty crop block grants. Specialty crops are things like fruits, vegetables, tree nuts, medicinal plants and nursery, floriculture and horticulture crops. The specialty crop block grant program was established in the Farm Bill back in 2004. And since 2006, USDA has invested more than $950 million through this program to fund over 11,000 projects nationwide. And Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory 
regulatory programs Jenny Moffitt says for the latest round of specialty crop block grant awards recently announced, the numbers come in at $72.9 million in funding this year. So that is funding for over 600 projects across states, territories, and the District of Columbia. Some of the projects awarded grants for this fiscal year demonstrate the wide range of use and focus within the specialty crop industry. Everything from enhancing food safety to investing in specialty crop research, looking at pollinator habitat to enhance specialty crops, developing new seed varieties, conservation and environmental outcomes related to specialty crops, improved strategies for pest management and disease control, to also looking at the marketing campaigns, high-quality digital marketing campaigns, developing the next generation of specialty crop producers as well. The Undersecretary says more details about USDA's specialty crop block grant program can be found online at www.ams.usda.gov. It's such an important tool for specialty crop producers to really identify research, identify education, identify marketing, identify production practices so that we are helping and supporting producers and the whole supply chain. In addition to the recent specialty crop block grant awards, USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture also announced 21 projects will receive $74 million in grant funding under the Specialty Crop Research Initiative. These projects address critical issues in the specialty crop industry. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, how the public can help the authors of the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor and Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire, a brand new installment on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. Back now for the final segment of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. How can the public help the authors of the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor report? Rod Bain has this report. Brian Fuchs admits, in times of extreme drought, such as what most of the West and parts of the Plains have experienced over the past two years, citizen interest grows in what the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor reports. Yet he adds, as part of the National Drought Mitigation Center, and one of the authors of the Drought Monitor, sometimes what people see on the ground level in a local area and what the Drought Monitor reports condition-wise for that locale 
do not correlate. I think there is a perception out there that if I don't agree with the map, I need to call someone up and let them know. So with that in mind, in addition to input from 10 authors and several hundred climatology, weather, and academia experts crafting the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor reports, there is also input from you. How? As Fuchs explains... For the public, we have tools that individuals anywhere in the country can provide feedback of what's going on in their neck of the woods. It's a process called Seymour reporting. It's condition monitoring observer reports is what Seymour stands for. And there's a simple form that anyone can fill out. It's public and there's a link to it. They are able to tell this is what locally is happening. This is what the response to drought has been. Some of them also provide photographs. Hey, this is what my stock pond looks like. It's typically full this time of year. And now you can see it's receded several feet. Now Fuchs admits that while a submission of firsthand viewing and photos through Seymour reporting won't necessarily change a category on the drought monitor map. It may help the U.S. drought monitor author see, hey, there's an area that we're seeing a lot of impacts from and some of it's quite severe. We need to dig into the data a little bit more, talk to our local contributors and just see what's really going on in this area. So it kind of sheds some light on some of these areas that could possibly be getting overlooked by the process that we go through each week. The web address to locate the Seymour reporting page is www go.unl.edu slash c-m-o-r underscore drought. I think there's positions in place where people can submit their information. They can submit what they are seeing on the ground. Also, talk to your local point of contact. Many states have an active state climate office that is participating in the weekly process of making the map and start locally. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally today, Paul Marchant talks about a brighter and clearer picture in the latest installment of Irons in the Fire. This is Paul Marchant coming at you with another version of Irons in the Fire. I've got a favorite picture that's hanging on my office wall. It was taken by my now-deceased father-in-law late in the summer of 1992. It's a picture of me and my then two-year-old daughter, Elise. My back is to the camera, and I'm holding Elise, who is facing the camera with her head resting on my shoulder, as she looks at the camera with her big Jersey cow brown eyes. I remember the day the picture was taken fairly well. My wife's parents had come to spend a few days while my mother-in-law helped my wife after the birth of Anna, kid number three. It was just before sundown. I'd spent the day on the mountain moving cows. Elise, who was a bit out of sorts from all of the commotion and confusion to two-year-old faces with the arrival of a new sibling, she was thrilled to see her dad and just wanted me to hold her. I was happy to oblige her. I was worn out from the day's work, and it rescued both me and my father-in-law from any awkward, obligatory conversation about how my day had been. And besides, positive attention from a child under the age of four always melts the heart in the best of ways. And I have another favorite picture on the office wall, opposite the picture of my oldest daughter and her dad. It's a picture of me and Adele, Elise's two-year-old daughter. It was taken by my son a couple summers ago when Elise and her husband Will and their two kids were visiting from Wyoming. It's identical to the first picture, but my daughter is replaced by my granddaughter. Besides the generation and 20-some-odd years, the pictures are both very similar, except the newer picture Aided by newer and better digital technology is much clearer. 
On my desk beneath the two pictures, I keep a list that Elise printed off and gave to me as a gift when she gave me the framed picture of me and Adele for Father's Day. The list is entitled, 10 Things I Learned From My Dad. Now, there could be a truckload of things on that list that I'd rather not repeat or share. Things such as how to cuss a cow and what unsavory words might best fit a given situation, or how to leave a gate open for just a few minutes because we'll be right back through and the horses are cleared down at the other end of the field anyway, or how to lose patience with a young horse while you're shooing him, or how to give up when you're trying to help a seventh grader learn algebra, or how to sour your kids on helping sort cows or process calves because they rarely hear a thank you or even an encouraging word. Or how to track mud across the living room floor because it's too inconvenient to take your boots off out on the porch. Or how to make a lake in the horse bend because you forgot to turn the hose off. Or how to leave dirty dishes on the table or in the sink. Or how to run the pickup in a snowy ditch in January because you took the turn too fast. Or how to always get the last word in during an argument no matter how hurtful that last word may be. Or how to ruin a good set of rawhide reins because you use them to tie your horse up on the corral fence just for a minute. Anyway, you get the idea. She could have made up a really long list if she'd wanted. But she chose to make her list up of mostly good and positive things. Things that I wasn't really aware that I taught her. She came up with some gems that were largely unspoken, but that she somehow found and amid the chaos and desert devoid of goodness that life lived in an imperfect world sometimes becomes. She remembered some other things. She remembered things like, no man is an island. You should be considerate of those, considerate of those around you. Don't head in for dinner until the job is done. Number three, being immersed in agriculture is worth any inconvenience associated with it. Number four, give your employers their money's worth. Number five, Become educated in as many ways as possible. Number six, never forget your family or your heritage. Number seven, never treat another person as inferior. Number eight, set a goal to accomplish something and then do it. Number nine, it's nice to have money, but money can't really buy a good life. And number ten, the life of a cowboy is a tough life, but it's a good life. Now, with the exception of number 10, which is something I always quoted to the kids when we were in the middle of some miserable job that rarely, if ever, reflected the romance of cowboy life, her list consists more of how I try to live and less of things I actually said. Just like the newer picture is clearer than the older one, experience and hindsight can make things brighter and clearer. Thank goodness for the softening touch of years that can somehow dull the bitter sharpness of harsh words and hard times and brighten the most pleasant memories. And if you're listening to this, I hope you feel the same way. This is Paul Marchant with Irons in the Fire wishing you a happy and wonderful week. And that wraps up the program today. I'm Neil Larson. For a podcast of this and previous programs, check out IdahoFarmNet.com. We'll catch you next week at this time on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.